Welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. And it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I have enjoyed playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to the people who create these games. Well, today's show is really exciting for me. Now, you might hear I'm a little croaky. I am so excited about today's show that I'm recording even though I've recently lost my voice. And I'm going to soldier through this only because, well, I guess only through pure excitement and enthusiasm. As you guys know, I'm a hopeless tragic for all things 80s toys. Uh, my lockdown project during 2020 and 2021 was to create a 28 millimeter GI Joe army for bolt action. You guys know that I have created uh, all sorts of transformers and other 80s toy license uh, armies to put on the tabletop over the years. But there's always been a gap. There's always been a game that I've desperately wanted to put on the tabletop. And today is the day that we have the power to plug that gap. Joining me today are the folks at Archon Studio, and they are here to talk about Masters of the Universe Battleground. Gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice. I am so excited. Please introduce yourselves. Okay, it, it was a pleasure to join you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, so we brought you the game author, Jacek Karpowicz, Masters of the Universe Battleground author. With us is also uh, Szymon Evertowski, our customer service specialist. Uh, I'm a, a game developing and a project manager also uh, for the next wave of the Battleground. Nice. Now, I am going to get to those waves in just a second, but let's talk a little bit about Masters of the Universe Battleground right now. Now, Masters of the Universe Battleground recently came out in the last couple of months. And as we said before, Archon Studio has put it out. Now, people might know your name uh, for a variety of products you've put out. You did a Wolfenstein game. Uh, you are the guys behind Dungeons and Lasers, the brilliant hard plastic dungeon pieces that a lot of people use for tabletop gaming and role playing, amongst other things, some of which we'll talk about today. How did you guys get involved? with Masters of the Universe, because this is a very well-developed game, and it seems like it would have taken you a lot of time to put it together. How long has this project been in the works, and how did you get involved with putting He-Man on the tabletop? Um, first step was connected with uh, buying license from the licensor, so the um, whole a long pro a procedure uh, must uh, must uh, took place before uh, Jacek uh, could uh, start working on the actual game. So that was the first step. More about games development. Uh, Jacek uh, should uh, say really interesting things how he uh, he he was working on the game. Um, how long have you guys been working on this? Because one of the things that I find so exciting, having played this a couple of times recently, 
is how fully formed and developed the game feels for something that's right out of the, the gate. It's brand new. And yet the depth of the, the tactics that are on the tabletop, even including the models that come in the core set is pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, I think historically, uh, this company's always made really good models. Um, if you look at some of our earlier games, like Load, uh, it also had pretty good models. Uh, unfortunately, it was lacking a bit in the rules department, but we've been fortunate to be blessed with such amazing designers that we've had recently. Um, and because, of, you know, our, our games have gotten much better as well. We have been working on the human for about two years. What is interesting, for, at the start, we, we weren't sure if we actually use that license or would we, would we rather prefer to create our own IP. So for, for the long time, it, it was actually a slightly different game. But at, at the end of the day, we decided to change it to him. Well, one of the things that's really interesting when you first open the box and put it out on the table is that it is a miniature game that has really detailed miniatures, which we'll talk about later, but they're on round bases and it's on a hex board. Now, having played a lot of games on hexes in the 1980s, it really felt like a nice nod back to retro gaming to put this game on a hex board. What was even better though, was I was a little afraid the first time I went to play it that it would feel like a game from the 80s. Having grown up in that time period and played those games, having gone back recently, unfortunately, most of those games aren't very streamlined and modernized. This game, on the other hand, looks like it has the 80s touch, but it is very modern. Uh, and it has a lot of really original mechanics was there any design aesthetic in your head about mechanics you wanted to put into the game that made it what it would become when you started or was it an evolution as you went that made it into the streamlined modern game that it is now it's definitely a process i remember when i was playtesting the game there weren't any hex spaces for example uh, it was more like a classic war game on the table. Um, so, and I really liked the hex spaces, uh, the way they were added as well. Because uh, I personally didn't really like the war gaming system, um, where you move with inches instead of uh, squares or hexes. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say. Yeah, referring to the um, to the um, game in general, we really uh, we really put efforts to make the game as much uh, human style as possible. So the art style, um, the uh, characters, the models, their cards, equipment, all was strictly uh, st um, strictly uh, compared to the compendiums, to the um, actual uh, classic line uh, lore. So we really uh, spent much time all to uh, guarantee that everything is as much 80 um, toys style as possible. Uh, referring to the rules, Jacek uh, for sure can say something more. As uh, Jakub mentioned, we uh, really tried to make it as human as possible. 
And you also try to reflect that in the rules itself. And as you can you probably know, the abilities of the uh, characters reflect their um, counterparts from the TV series and the toys. For example, human needs to be uh, supported by his friends. Skeletor is really evil, and whenever he, his allies receive wounds, he becomes stronger. And Orko, of course, he can fumble his spell. So it, we really wanted it to be um, for the fans of the Master of the Uni Universe. And yeah, yeah, capture the essence of the oh, um, of, of the original series and what was. Going back to the hexes, I I love that though you move using the hexes, so the movement is very clean. You can't accuse anyone of moving one inch too far or you know not sure of where things go. You know exactly where everything is all the time, but you measure range using a, a range ruler. So it is one of the cleanest measuring games I've played because it has the grid to move but you can measure using the stick, so there's no debate. It is what it is. You see it. You can pre-measure it. And because terrain, again, has the hexes built into the bottoms of the feet of all the terrain that this game comes with, again, there's no debating of, do I have half a line of sight here? Do I get cover? You can just immediately look at it and see it because it is laid out on those hexes. But again, because you have that straight line of the ruler, super clean as well. I think that works really well. Now, let's talk about the characters that you guys were just getting into, because the core game alone comes with some of the biggest fan favorites in the Masters of the Universe. Just on the hero side, we have the Flying Warrior Stratos, we have Man in Arms, we have Ram Man, and as you guys just said, you have Orko and you have Hemet. I mean, those are all iconic characters from the TV series and or from the mini comics, if you are from that era as well. And on the villain side, of course, we have Skeletor, uh, we have Trapjaw, Triclops, Evelyn, and Merman. Now, I know a lot of people were saying, where's Beastman when the game came out? But we'll get to that in just a minute. Was there a reason why you chose these characters to go in the core box? I mean, obviously you had to include some big names, right? Just so people would be interested and want to buy in to have their favorite childhood toys on the tabletop. But the Masters of the Universe range had so many characters you could have chosen from. Why choose these? Um, was there a particular reason or were there characters that you knew you wanted to give a little bit more depth to Scareglow or the Sorceress, for example, who needed extra bits added to their box later that couldn't go in the core box? As you said, we've started with some fan favorite names, big names for each factions, but uh, there were also some uh, designers reasons to choose uh, this a set of characters, not the other. Yes, we need a specific uh, skill set in uh, every team. So every team needs uh, a melee guy, a tank, uh, a range character, a spellcaster. We need to make sure that you get an options. Yeah, it's, it's mainly about like complementing uh, the uh, skill sets of each character. Yeah, and that's one thing that I think, especially when you pull out the box the first time and you 
play the introduction scenario, it's very cleanly laid out. It tells you what characters to put on the board. It even tells you where to put them. It tells you where to put the terrain and how to equip the characters to get a good overview of the game. And I've having played that twice now, once with a friend and once by myself, I think that that really helped me to understand how to play the game. So I think, as you say, there's a nice spread of characters. And then as you can get expansions later, you could perhaps trade out perhaps the sorceress for Orko if you want a different spellcaster, for example, or Tila for man-at-arms if you want a different warrior on the good side. So there's a lot of great options there. But if you want to go magic-heavy, you could always include Orko and the Sorceress, right? So it gives you some nice choice. But as you said, the core game itself gives you a nice spread of characters. Well, guys, something you alluded to earlier is you're talking about the the lore and the history of these characters. Well, I'm holding in my grubby little paw a giant, fat, hardbound book, which is the Masters of the Universe Encyclopedia. Uh, And it's got a ton of different characters histories and lore behind them and i just love reading this book mainly because my masters of the universe and generations of masters of the universe that came afterward are very different and there are different characters that have appeared in different iterations of the the cartoon over the years and some characters have wildly changed in the design aesthetic their history for example when he-man first came out or the Masters of the Universe toys, I read the mini comics that came with the action figures religiously. And with that, you saw that He-Man was a barbarian living in the deep, dark forests, and he gets summoned to Castle Grayskull to be its defender, to defend it against the evil warriors led by Skeletor. That is a very different story than what a lot of, I mean, my wife loves Masters of the Universe or the He-Man cartoon as a kid, but for her, of course, uh, He-Man is, has the alter ego of Adam, who then turns into He-Man when no one's looking and pulls out the sword and says the magic words, I have the power, whereas that wasn't in the mini comics. Was it hard for you guys to bridge the gap of all the different intellectual properties, histories, that tied together into one big Masters of the Universe sort of continuity mess over the years? Or were you just sort of trying to latch on to some of the the big key ideas that everyone would be sort of aware of? Uh, to give a short answer, the second uh, option, uh, to be honest and um, to say it clear, we've got a license for the Masters of the Universe Classics toy line. This toy line came out with uh, different uh, lore, but uh, the designers were trying to to put everything together. The milestones, the most most important things in the uh, moto history together and uh, recreate some elements. So that's uh, that's our starting point for every character for every card for every design here because we are strictly connected by the uh, license agreement to to this canon but uh, as i said that's uh, give us possibility to uh, to take 
many elements uh, from from the whole uh, masters of the universe story. Um, you mentioned compendiums encyclopedias. We've also worked with this uh, this uh, great books. Jacek uh, has it on his deck. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, we strictly uh, cooperating with uh, European laurel expert uh, known um, in the fandom Yuka Isakainen from Finland. He's mm -hmm. uh, a great guy. Regards, Yuka. Uh, thank you for the cooperation so we can always double check some some things just to gu guarantee the fans that everything is strictly um, strictly okay and fair with the canon given what you're talking about about with the license the, the mini comics i have a collection that was put out by dark horse not too long ago which is the compilation of all of those mini comics so if you have the toy license, the universe of Masters of the Universe for you guys, for your game system, basically revolves around the, the lore laid out by the toys and the mini comics that they contained. Am I understanding that right? Uh, yes. To, to put it shortly, yes. We are, uh, we are connected with, with this, uh, this um, uh, canon, the classics. But as you can read in the book, uh, each character has really well developed a backstory written in the encyclopedia. So that's the uh, that's the main source for our characters' bios. Uh, yeah. Well, let's talk about how the characters play out on the tabletop. Because as you guys said before, taking the characters and what makes them, their personality, their powers, their weapons those are all incorporated into what the miniatures can do on the tabletop. And the way that you've done it, I think, is really clever. Each character has its own character card. They have strength. They have um, how many health they have. They have their defense against physical and against magic. They have their movement. Uh, and they have a couple of special abilities that are uniquely theirs. That gives each character in and of themselves a lot of personality and presence on the tabletop. But then you can add characteristic weapons or just weapons from the, the card packs that are in the game that allow you to give the characters their particular uh, signature moves or weapons. For example, you can give He-Man, of course, the Sword of Power. But then the, you can also add things like armor, different types of trinkets, shields, long-distance weapons, close combat. There's just a lot of different upgrades that you can give to characters that really do change the way that those characters work on the tabletop and interact with other characters in the terrain. It's really clever because not only does each character have its own personality and abilities, but because they're able to take the custom weapons for those characters and then some generic weapons as well, you really are able to customize the characters to match the story that you might have played out as a kid. For example, I loved, even though I only had the classic He-Man toy, my friend had the battle armor He-Man, and I was so excited 
when I was able to open the box and the very first card on top of the item deck was the battle armor card. So I can finally have a battle armor He-Man. And I know that you're probably going to talk about this while you go, but the art that goes on these cards also feels very much like they are straight out of the original mini comics. How hard was it for you guys to come up with the list of items and characteristic for each character so that you could create the, the, these characters and what they do on the tabletop? Because this is, I think one of the deepest and richest parts of the game. Uh, I think we were pretty lucky um, in terms of a licensor. Uh, we basically had a, as I, if I recall correctly, we had a list of um, uh, a toys that the uh, licensing company made, uh, and they had their own like a uh, list of things that they obviously uh, the, the characters had. Uh, I, I think I remember translating a couple of, and helping with some of the design, uh, but I think uh, our two lovely designers here can speak more on the matter. Yeah, and on the other, on the other hand, uh, we really can do it. There's, uh, from time, time to time, there's some uh, attacks in social media, just like, hey, Arkan, you are uh, hiring uh, first-time developers. That's not true. Jacek, for example, is a really clever guy. He's got an experience also in a video game uh, develop, uh, developing. And we, uh, we tr um, trust, uh, we uh, show you that we really can do it. Just mm. uh, check, uh, check uh, Moto Battleground, check Wolfenstein. Uh, we know what we do and uh, the outcomes uh, are really satisfying. Mm, absolutely. Now, I want to talk about a couple of the mechanics in the game that I think really make the game. One of the things when I've played skirmish games is that you can sometimes, when you're rolling for damage, end up having these big swings where characters will do tons of damage or do no damage. And it can feel real bad when your opponent does a lot of damage and you do none. I really like that this game when you are rolling to attack somebody, the more successes you get, you then compare it to a little chart at the bottom of each weapon or at the bottom of each character uh, attack that tells you exactly how many successes equal how many damage. For example, you might be able to do, you might do uh, four damage to somebody, but then if you go down to the weapon, you realize if you go to the little chart of how many successes there are, you've only done two damage. Um, you're not doing four damage. Or if you did five uh, successes, that's only three damage, depending on the weapon. I think that's a really nice touch. In some cases, you have to get two or three hits to even do one damage. It really levels out the amount of damage that characters can do. So it doesn't mean that your favorite character gets knocked off the table the first time they get hit. Um, what led to the development of that mechanic? Because that is one of my favorite parts of the game. I think part of it was me raging slightly when my character died in one turn. Uh, I'm not sure if my feedback was listened to, but... Yeah, yeah that's something more. Uh, in the first iteration of the game, we actually, all weapons deal the same damage. It, it was uh, for one success, you could deal one damage. And if you have three successes, that's a critical hit, and you deal two damage. 
but uh, during our playtest, we decided that, that this is um, too limiting for us and uh, very hard to design uh, unique feeling weapons. So I come out, come out with this idea and it works much better. Of course, in the so early iterations, as Shimon mentioned, uh, characters have uh, way less uh, HP, so you could die with one hit, but it was not very fun also, so we yeah. like, increased the uh, health points of the old characters by two, more or less, and now it feel, feels m way better. It does, and it also means that you have to think about where you're putting things on the tabletop um, because there's a lot more coordination between models. It's not like one hero is going out and knocking off everyone else's toys. It is, you know, everyone's working with another character or another couple of characters, and you're always moving characters around together to give that feeling. And if you read the mini comics, characters that run off by themselves often run into trouble. And this, um, because, I mean, even He-Man, I'm thinking back to, I think, the first mini-comic, Merman, Beastman, and Skeletor gang up on him and knock him down and take a sky sled for a ride. And then He-Man has to go get, you know, a, a different girdle of strength and then find someone else to help him do his fighting. And this game feels that way. He-Man can't just wade into the middle of the, all the villains, knock them down and laugh and say, I have the power and I have a nice day. You need to work your characters together. And because of the rules that comes on each one, there's really nice synergies there. So you can have those nice teamwork moments where Orko is, as you say, trying to make a spell work, but it doesn't always work. But uh, Man-in-Arms can be in the background with his laser shooting. It just feels good. As I said, I I'm very impressed with the weapon cards for this game in particular. Again, I know I talked about Battle Armor He-Man. My friend also who had Battle Armor He-Man also had Terror Claws Skeletor. And I love that, and, and again, Terror Claws is one of the upgrade cards. Now you can give that to any of the characters. Wait for the dinos. Ooh, hello. <laughs> yes, this is going to be cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, but again, it's all the little things that made each iteration of the toy cool. You can then equip them on the tabletop. Well, let's get back to my favorite mechanics. So in this game, you have fate and glory cards. The fate cards, you get a couple at the start of the game and you hold them off to the side. The glory cards, you make a little deck of 20 and over four turns, you play five a turn. And those, when you turn them over, are how you activate characters, or I'm getting my names confused. Yes. Okay. Um, what's yeah, you get two fate cards and 20 glory cards. And, and you get five glory cards to activate your characters a turn. You have them face down. You flip them over. And when you see that, that that's what, or no, sorry, you don't have them face over, uh, face down. You, you're looking at them and you play them. It's almost like a bidding system. Mm -hmm. um, and so you and your opponent have a mini game at the start of every time you activate characters to figure out, hmm, which of, I, you know, which of these cards am I going to play? Because some cards will allow you to activate first. Other cards will give you better activations with your characters, giving them more power with more mana. And other cards will give you more 
um, activation points so your characters can do more on the table. And some have some special abilities baked into the bottom that might give you a bonus uh, depending on what's happening. That mini game of figuring out which of the activation cards or the glory cards you're playing, again, this that makes this game so unique. And it really does make this game work. And if you desperately need something else, that's where fake cards come in because you have these two super cards off to the side and you can play them at any time. And as if that isn't enough, the glory cards, if you desperately need a boost to a character, you can burn a glory card from your hand to extend a character's activation. It doesn't give them any more activation points from the top of the card, but the the text that's baked into the bottom might allow them to do something else that might win you the game or give you an activation when you desperately need it or extra mana. There's just a lot there. This process strikes me as something that would have taken a long time to develop. Can you talk about that? Because the Fate and Glory cards are a wonderful addition to this game. Uh, firstly, we, we wanted to avoid... Uh some uh, trap of the many similar skirmish games when you have two action points and all you, you do is just you move and you shoot eventually you aim and you shoot yeah? so so we wanted to be simply a bit more advanced and we also want to introduce some sort of uh, shared resources that characters have to divide between themselves thanks to that whenever you make any action with any of your characters you drain that pool of resources and you affect your other activations, even not, not, not always directly, but you know, a little bit in the indirect changes to make an um, interesting uh, gameplay decisions. At the, end of, at the end of the day, the game is a series of interesting decisions. So we, we want to make sure that, that players have the, as many of those as possible. Yeah, I, I love the decision-making that you're forced to make. When I was playing this in my first game, I spent every turn staring at my cards, trying to figure out which character to give which card. And as the turn evolved, I was constantly changing my mind about which card to go where. And it it just forced me to make a lot of good, hard decisions, which lead to good strategy. I just, I really, I can't it, express enough how much I like this mechanic because yeah, it I really just, does give the game its its essence. Uh, yeah, can I just say, uh, I'm being a little bit biased here, but as a Magic the Gathering player, I also really like the system of uh, fate cards and, uh, and glory cards. It, it definitely reminds me a bit of a flexible card game with some of the decisions you have to make. Absolutely. Yeah, it, a lot of hard choices. Another thing I like about this is the focus mechanic. Now, when you activate a character, depending on how many action points they get from the glory or the fake cards, you can move, you can attack, you can cast a spell, you can fire a weapon if it's at range, or you can focus. Now, if you focus, that will give you bonuses to the next thing that you do. Now, if you focus move, if you, for example, if we take Evelyn, for example, Evelyn has a movement of five slash six. So if you move her, she can move five spaces. If you focus 
and then move. She can move six. Now that may not seem like good economy, five to six. Um, but some characters, um, like Stratos, for example, that's a massive jump. And I, I'm trying to think of the difference there, but I think he goes from five to nine, um, which is, fine. sorry, sorry, six, nine. So he moves significantly further when you focus him. And yes, that takes up an activation point and keeps you from doing something else later. But you need to really, I mean, sometimes because this is an objective-based game where you get points for knocking out opponent's characters and for grabbing objectives, you need that extra movement. But at the same time, the focuses allow you to re-roll dice later when you need them. So you're kind of wondering, oh, activations... Where am I putting these activations? How am I activating my characters so I can achieve what I want on the tabletop? And again, just like the glory and the fake cards, that really does give you uh, fits over some decision-making um, when you're learning the game because you're not sure, ooh, what, what, how am I going to get there? And you do have to make hard choices, and that makes for great gameplay. How did the movement mechanic come to be? It actually came out during our first playthrough of the game. Uh, I was played, and I have only two action points. I move my character, and then I have no one in range. I have there was no reason to use Overwatch, and I have nothing to do. It, it really sucked, and I decided that we had to do something about that. And after a few. few Brainstorms, we came out with the focus idea to really solve this problem. It does really give some of the characters their personality. Uh, for example, Ram Man doesn't necessarily go very far. He's a tanky character. He's very slow. And you can't focus him into having a big, long run. Whereas other characters, like Stratos, goes from six to a nine. So again that movement characteristic really does help to build their uh, abilities and their personality on the tabletop. Very clever. Well, I do want to jump to the elephant in the room, which is when you look at this table, that one of the great things about Masters of the Universe Battleground is the terrain. Now, you guys have lots of experience from Dungeons and Lasers. Now, you guys haven't just made one or two different dungeon sets. There are a ton. You have science fiction dungeon sets. You have Weird War, uh, World War II dungeon sets. You have uh, alien spacecraft. You have, uh, I mean, the list goes on. Dwarven holds, caves. There's all kinds. When you were thinking about Masters of the Universe Battleground game, how much did you fall back when you were just coming up with the idea of the game of saying, I want to put that kind of terrain, the hard plastic walls, on the tabletop. Because the walls are in different pieces and you can maneuver them around, you really can set up the board a bunch of different ways to match a bunch of different scenarios, which gives you very different gameplay, but is, again, prescribed so it's fair for both players. How much did your experience with the dungeon building uh, lean into the creation of this game? Uh, it definitely helped a bit. Um, something about our terrain is that we use Hibs Plastic Injection, 
Uh, and today, there's only a couple of companies that, uh, that make terrain, uh, plastic terrain for all sorts of dungeons uh, that actually use hips. An example is Games Workshop for some of their bigger, like tree models for, for outdoor terrain, that kind of stuff. Um, but the vast majority of companies use other, other ways of producing plastic, uh, which definitely helps. Um, hips allows for like really high quality, high, really sturdy uh, plastic. Um, we already use it for all our uh, models, uh, but yeah, definitely the, the, using it for terrain really helps. Yeah, I Ramp, uh, Dungeons and Lasers is not the only uh, trademark uh, from Arkham Studio. There's also a Rampart uh, terrain dedicated especially for Wargamers. So we've got uh, a, great, um, a great experience in creating and developing uh, such stuff. So referring to uh, Battleground, it was something like this. We've, proved, we've already proved uh, many times that we are uh, making it good. We are uh, selling perfect pieces for players, for wargamers. Let's use some of this stuff for the game purposes. Absolutely. And I was particularly impressed when I opened the box. Often when you open a core box and it comes with terrain, it tends to be very repetitive because as you say, because it's injection molded plastic, companies will often give you, you know, a couple of pieces that they will have recreated a bunch of times that tend to be very generic so that you have maybe the same wall or the same house a couple of different times, but they're all exactly the same. What I really liked about this box is that, yes, there is a little bit of repetition, but there is so much variety in the just in the wall pieces and in the scatter terrain that goes on, along the floor that not only gives you the feeling that you are fighting in and around Castle Grayskull, but also it's not just the same sword on the wall. It's not just the same blank brick wall with a little panel on it. You have ladders, you have platforms that go on top of the walls, you have um, doorways, you have windows that are sort of half crumbled in that you can peer through. Um, there are just so many different aesthetic touches, like a, a coat of arms on one wall, uh, scientific devices on another wall, uh, a tapestry hanging from another wall. And there's just such a great range. How intentional was it to have that variety in there? Even if it's just having a little, a manacle on the wall, so it looks like a dungeon or a, a, a creeper, a vine creeper going up the wall. If you look at the Castle Grayskull toy, so many nods to the terrain in this game. It's oh, wonderful. So there's um, there are two aspects according to this uh, to this issue. The first, we really well studied the encyclopedias and uh, to find the references, some nuts for for the original toys. So there was uh, no problems to get approval because uh, all of these pieces are strictly uh, taken from the original toys. It's also some Easter eggs uh, to find uh, to find for fans. And as I mentioned before, there's also uh, another aspect. We are really, as a company, uh, doing uh, these terrains really 
um, in a good quality. We uh, we know the uh, many usages for a simple piece. So as you said, uh, leathers, um, uh, holes uh, in the walls, uh, windows. So Jacek uh, could make a great usage from uh, from we offered him. Yeah, even the bricks of the brick walls are very nicely textured and they take a dry brush really well. So it means that you're able to put the terrain on the tabletop and have it look great with almost minimal effort. Um, if you want to go in on the deep detail that's in there as well, you can do that as well. And you're, you're going to have a great looking table either way that you go, which I think is really nice because oftentimes... How many times do we, do we as gamers walk into a shop and look at people playing on a tabletop where they may have beautiful painted models, but you know, for some skirmish games where there are plastic uh, terrain to put out, people just haven't bothered past assembling it to paint it. Um, and it, it can look really bad. This is really easy to paint up. And because it is a bunch of walls that you connect while you're playing or when you're setting up the game, you don't have to spend forever setting it up. It took me almost no time to pull it out of the box, snip it from the sprue. I ran a hobby knife over the edge because there was a couple of small mold lines, but in less than an hour, I had gone from sealed box to all terrain ready for paint. And because it does have that nice detail, you can just do that great dry brush, have it ready to go, and add the details later. Guys, my hat's off to you. The detail in this is amazing. Uh, thank you. Uh, we're really lucky to have our designers. Uh, it, come, it goes like all the way from just even designing the sprue, so it's easy to cut out, uh, to like even the details on all the walls and everything. It's, mm -hmm. it's a pretty lot of work, and we're really happy with our design. Well, another aspect to this game, to, to pull back out of the actual core game for a second, is that you guys have spent a lot of time focusing on organized play and making sure the gameplay is fair. Now, there aren't point values for the characters and the gear in the box. You have to get it from the, the website, which is fine because it's a living document. And I know that first wave of models uh, past the core box has just come out. The mm -hmm. points for everything is currently online. So you can play with the new stuff immediately and it makes sure that if something needs fixing, you guys have your finger on the pulse and you're able to keep track of that. How important was it for you to have a fair game that allowed players to play competitively if they want to, or to play narratively? And to how did the living document, um, as far as point values go, how did that play into the creation of, of that fair, balanced game? It's still a really fresh title. So the feedback will, uh, will come to us, um, and we will uh, for sure analyze all of the feedback and implement it to make the game and next waves even better. Uh, one more thing, uh, before publishing the game, as Jacek mentioned, there, uh, there was a, almost a two, uh, two years uh, period of 
testing, developing uh, our um, testers group, uh, internal and external, and Piwa uh, was involved in the project. Uh, Jacek is a great designer, but there's also um, another advantage. We hired a really well-known uh, technical writer, Adam Baker, to uh, make as great a rule book as possible. He's got a great and wide experience uh, in, uh, with uh, developing board games, rule books. So that's another addition for the game. It's really it's, uh, stream um, easy to uh, to write and to get the the, uh, the rules, the mechanics uh, after even one uh, one uh, reading of the rules. Exactly. And I, I do want to point something out. You guys do, I mean, English is not some of your native language is. Um, now, I know that there have been criticisms of, if we think back to the Batman game, for example, it was written originally in Spanish. And when it was translated into English, it wasn't, especially with early iterations, it suffered from what some people called uh, Spanglish, where... It, it it didn't always read clearly um, if you were reading the English version of the game. I have to say, this game does not have that. I was blown away to learn that the person who wrote this game wasn't a native English speaker. It is so clearly laid out. As you said, your technical writer is fantastic because it is very clear. Uh, it is it is perfect English and. I just want people listening today to understand that when you open this rule book, you are going to get a nice, finished, balanced game that reads perfectly. Uh, and there's fewer typos than in most games that I play, which is really nice to see as well. Now, we did get to mentioning the game is growing. There is Wave 1, which has just hit the streets. And we have... Um, a heroic box and a villain's box. Now the heroic box includes two super iconic characters, um, which are integral to the masters of the universe lore, the sorceress for uh, the defender of castle Grayskull, and Tila, the warrior woman. Now what's cool about these characters is when you get this box um, on the sprue that has both of those plastic characters, you also get special uh, portals that you can use with the cards that these characters come with. This box has 16 cards in it. There are addition to the rules, so you can use the portals. Um, there's new weapons. There's new gear. Uh, there are new, obviously, the two new character cards. But again, you also have additional fake cards that have been added in that you can cycle through that give you new special abilities on the tabletop that tie to these characters. It it's a really nice, well-rounded addition. Can you talk to us a little bit about the development of the Sorceress and Tila and what they bring to the tabletop, especially given that they have these portals? Firstly, those actually aren't portals, but uh, force fields. But ah, force fields. Everybody make, makes that, that mistake, so that's okay. Uh, we also we designed those characters to... Um, uh, fill up so, some holes in their rosters of the 
of uh, Master of the Universe. For example, they have only one spellcaster, Orko, and some people may not like his playstyle. He's a very random, unpredictable guy. So they may want to replace him with sorceress. And she also uh, give lots of bonuses for the players who like to play more defensively because uh, he provides ex extra uh, interruptions for other characters. So she goes very well with uh, men at arms who can utilize those interruptions very well. And uh, Tila, she's quite interesting character because when you look on the, her stat line, they are not that impressive. She don't have lots of armor and health and yet she is a melee fighter, but with her abilities and incre incredible agility, mm -hmm. she can outmaneuver most of the characters on, on the table and always end up on the back or far away or nice and hidden spot. And she can deliver a lot of damage, especially if you feed a little bit with her uh, items. Dagger is great for her. Yeah. And, and the models look absolutely fantastic for both of these characters. I mean, I've noticed that across the board, but having really only just had the opportunity to see the um, Wave 1 models in the last couple of weeks, they're fresh in my eyes, and wow, they look good. Not only the heroes, but the villains as well, because the villains box, which is a separate wave one box, has two other characters. We get Beast Man, who's one of my favorites, um, and we also get Scareglow. Now, again, 16 cards come in this box. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but these guys come with portals. Correct. All right. I knew there were portals in there somewhere. And the, the, the big terrain pieces that came in the heroes box, um, those are force fields. Um, what we have for the villains are portals that they can travel through. Uh, and of course, we also have both of these characters have very different mechanics. Beastman gets stronger the more you hit him uh, and the angrier he gets. And Scareglow can actually curse people um, and make them scared and they get debuffs while he gets buffs. So they both have really interesting play styles. Am I getting those characters right? Yes. Can you talk to us about these characters like you did Sorceress and Tila? Because that was a great explanation. So, as you already said, uh, Beastman he's, uh, becomes the stronger when he receives wounds. And he's also a very tanky character. He can spend his mana to uh, decrease amount of damage he received. Which is very interesting because he has, he, he has very little uh, of armor and mind. So he almost always receives some damage from the attacks, but not a lot because he can just reduce this amount to one. So if you want to deal with him, you have to qu uh, quantity over quality. Mm -hmm. Basically, use as many attacks as possible and not one powerful strike. So, for example, human won't be very good against him, but men at arms with his uh, little arm cannon, yeah, that, that would work great. Mm. Also, there's uh, some interesting synergy between uh, Scareglow and uh, Beastman because uh, Scareglow can uh, curse his own allies 
to get a free movement action. And curse the wound to, to character. Mm -hmm. So basically you curse the beastman, you get free action, and beastman become wounded, you become stronger from that. And if you have skeletor in this army, he skeletor receive uh, mana from that. So it's just great combo. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned it before, but I think it does bear repeating that every time one of the evil characters takes damage, Skeletor gets a bonus mana because he actually doesn't care about the guys he's with. He actually just thinks they're all um, buffoons, and he actually gets more powerful the more you hurt his friends, which is a really nice villain touch. Love it. Let's talk a little bit about the future of the game because... There is a lot to look forward to. Now, I understand Wave 2 perhaps has some things coming yeah, that, um, for more casual players. Probably, maybe. Um, yeah, there's a special, new, innovative game mode for the Wave 2. Wave 2 is already finished, and we are preparing a production process. And uh, from now on, we are also focusing and uh, thinking of wave three. Oh wow! I think for any oh, uh, okay, uh, well, I think for any game for it to be successful in the long run, it has to have some sort of competitive aspect. Um, uh, but, but first and foremost, the game should be fun, right? Um, if it's not fun, then nobody's going to play it in the first place. So. Well, I do know that you guys do have some promotional things that are out in the ether. I know that there were some hard plastic uh, mana tokens if you did some pre-ordering of Wave 1. Um, I know depending on how you got the box set um, with its initial release, some people were able to get a He-Man and Battle Cat. Uh, I may have been one of those people. Yeah, it wasn't It technically supposed to be available, um, but there was some miscommunication. It was supposed to be as, available as a tournament reward, uh, but online retail stores also got the uh, the box, which resulted in it being sent out to uh, yeah. customers, which is fine. Uh, those customers were lucky to receive a, a Balka. Uh, I'm thanking my lucky stars because uh, I loved that toy as a kid. Um, but are there going to be more promotional items moving forward? Because it seems to be a business model that you guys are going with with this game. Or is it something that you were more interested in using it to promote the game to get going in the first place. Um, and then you're going to try different things moving forward. Any, any thoughts moving forward? Uh, there's some uh, models and characters in development. So stay in, uh, stay in touch with us. Stay tuned. We will certainly uh, reveal more info when we, uh, when we can. Now, remember guys, that's Archon studio, go to their website. There's all sorts of great stuff in there. Now guys, I have to say thank you so much for coming on today. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on and just to talk about Masters of the Universe Battleground. I am very excited about this game. Uh, I was very lucky to get it because it is not fully released around the world yet, but I was able to get a friend in Europe to send it to me. Uh, I know a lot of people have been able to get their paws on it in different parts of the world that aren't necessarily licensed because they have friends in places or they... Yeah, that's the only, the only possibility to get it because we are strictly attached to the um, license agreement. Right. Um, and I was going to say, and that's not because these guys want to keep you from your toys. It's because they are strictly bound to the license that mm -hmm. they were able to get. Um, they're... It... it, it 
it is um, a reality of modern IP and intellectual property that oftentimes companies can be constrained uh, depending on the contracts that are available, especially with um, intellectual property such as He-Man that has such popularity that people can only get parts of, of the license for different parts of the world. So I highly recommend uh, looking around and seeing if you can get this game. I love it. I think it is an absolutely brilliant game. And I'm actually uh, planning to have some friends over in the coming weeks and playing having a game day because two of my other local friends got copies of the game. And uh, there are enough of us now, three games and a bunch of us who weren't able to get copies. And we're going to sit around and play some games and really get stuck in. So look forward to that on the Cast Dice Facebook page. Um, lots of pictures coming. And uh, we might just play it at the pub again because uh, it was very nice to play Masters of the Universe and have a tasty stout. But when I start talking about stout, it is definitely time to call it a day. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I think this game is wonderful, and I cannot wait to see how it evolves over time. Yeah, thank you for having us. Uh, definitely enjoyed our time here, I think. Great to great to hear all the enthusiasm and that you uh, that you like our game. Thank you for your time and for the invitation. Anytime. And guys, thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate you taking the time to check out the new YouTube channel. If you have not taken the time, please go to YouTube. Check out Cast Dice. Um, I promise I won't keep doing this, but as this is the beginning of the video series, I thought I would bring it up. Please go to Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. Check it out. Remember, YouTube algorithms are weird. They actually like it if you hit like and you watch for more than 10 seconds. I would love it if you took the time to check out my lovely face and uh, got to see some of the pictures and the actual lovely faces of my guests today. Also, if you have any ideas for the show, please go to Facebook, go to Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E, and uh, please let me know what you think of either this episode or if you have an idea for future episodes, this was a highly requested episode. I was going to do it anyway, but tons of people know how 80 centric I am and have liked the Facebook page and were looking for that. And when they saw this, they naturally, you know, Brad, you're doing this, right? Yes, I am. Um, so thank you to everyone who reached out to say, please, you know, can you do this episode? Um, because though I was already hunting down the game and trying to find a way, it really did fuel the fire. Uh, but guys, again, I think it's I think it's time to call it a day. Remember what our buddy Casey always says. When you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Another day ride